You are listening to the Family Business Podcast, the podcast aimed at delivering insights to help your family business thrive. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and each week I'll be bringing you interviews from family businesses and their advisors from all over the world. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Family Business Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and I'm really excited about today's episode. I'm going to be talking to Ellie Fry-Zabel, who is the founder and president of Successful Generations, which we will talk about uh, during the show, um, but also the vice chair of the Fry Foundation, which again, we're going to cover off in our conversation. Um, Today, the show episode is called Creating Successful Generations, and we want to have a look at how and why family businesses should look to create successful generations. So firstly, Ellie, hello and welcome to the show. Hi, Russ. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, It's an absolute pleasure. And um, for those that don't know, I have appeared on um, your podcast, so it's time for me to get my revenge today and ask you the questions. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) So to to kick off, could you give our audience a little bit of background uh, about yourself, um, your family business, the foundation, and, and how you've come to do what you're doing today? Yep, absolutely. I'm happy to. Uh, So Ellie Fizegel is my name, and I'm third generation vice chair trustee of my family's um, foundation called the Fry Foundation. We're based in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is also where I live. Uh, And um, I noticed that my family was doing something right when I looked around the boardroom table and I saw that not only were two members of our second generation, two out of the three members of our second generation participating, but also nine out of 10 of my third generation uh, were participating around the boardroom table. And we are a professionally managed uh, family foundation and we give in Western Michigan pretty much exclusively. Um, And we're about $150 million and uh, we have about a staff of six. So when I looked around this table and I saw all of my, you know, all my family members, and it's, it's a large boardroom table as you can imagine. And meanwhile, in my day job, I was meeting with families who couldn't get their next generation involved in their philanthropy. Uh, You know, I realized that my second generation had done something right. Um, And so I started to explore um, philanthropy uh, and, you know, what my family had done right. Um, Started asking a lot of questions about what is philanthropy, what is, what what is family philanthropy, philanthropy. Uh, And at the same time while I was doing this, and this was probably in my early 20s, um, to back up ever so slightly, I uh, I started uh, in my family's foundation at age 15. I know we're going to talk about that story in a second. So in my 20s, I just started asking a lot of questions about what family philanthropy was. Um, And then in my 30s, I started uh, ascending to more leadership. As I mentioned, I'm the vice chair of our board right now. My cousin, third generation, is is the chair of the board. And... um, yeah, and our and our second generation is is transitioning out, so we're in the process of of succession. Uh, and so, how this became more even more relevant was I was in my thirties. I was also a um, 
director of a family business center here in Western Michigan, kind of growing a center from a few uh, few multi-generational family businesses until just shy of um, 200 family businesses. Um, and I, and I'm, I've since exited out of that uh, and to start my own company. But while I was there, I realized that, again, I wasn't alone with working with my family. Uh, and so I started to identify the, the family business story that started the what is now our family business, which is, you know, a regional bank. So I'm happy to share any of those. Yeah, um, the, the, the thing that intrigues me is how the family business went to a family foundation, because as you mentioned, it was a regional bank, and if I'm right, um, it was your grandparents that set up the um, Fry Foundation, is that right? That is correct. Uh, and so what was the, the trigger point or the motivation for them to do that? Right. They, didn't, they didn't have to. No, they didn't. Uh, I get to hear that, you know, this type of story a lot in my work. And my, so we set up the foundation, my grandparents set up the foundation um, because the community had given so much to our family and supported our family through. And um, my grandfather was a second generation of the bank. My uncle ran the bank as a third generation. So I would be the fourth generation. Um, and so they wanted to give back to the community. And I'm sure there was, you know, uh, the lawyers got involved and said, really, you should start a <laughs> foundation. <laughs> so in 1974, they started a pass-through foundation. Um, and then upon their passing, uh, my grandfather's estate just went, entirely went to the foundation. So that was in 1989. It was fully endowed. Okay. Um, at what point did you become aware that the foundation was there? You say you started working in it, but... At fifteen, right? Was it around before then, and 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 was that kind of um, strange growing up in that environment where there was the sort of family name and the family foundation to uh, live up to? Right. No, that's a great question. So I grew up in northern Michigan, uh, so about three hours north of the where the family business, the bank, was headquartered. Uh, so I grew. I did not grow up. Um, in wealth, I didn't grow up with understanding that my family last name was uh, was noted anywhere else in the world, okay. <laughs> uh, much less you know three hours south, and definitely not understanding uh, anything about uh, philanthropy. I couldn't even spell philanthropy, right? I had no <laughs> idea what that meant. Um, and so, you know, kind of growing up on a family farm, like we, I remember time where we were kind of fighting over food. We had, there was five kids and we kind of, you know, it would get, you know, not violent, but we would kind of elbow <laughs> each other out for yeah. trying to like capture, you know, scraps off each other's table. You know, it just was, um, that was the kind of environment. And my dad is very, very private. He is the eldest son. He was, he just didn't want to have the corporate life. He really wanted to um, be on, you know, work the land and, and, and be as kind of his own, um, his own man, I guess mm -hmm. is the best way to say it. So that's the kind of, you know, environment that I grew up with. Now, I want to say that uh, I did know my grandparents um, had money uh, going over to their house. It was, it was obvious. My Christmases were not like anybody else's Christmases. Right. So we had very extravagant Christmases and birthdays. Um, but that was really the only time that I felt um, there was something going on. Mm -hmm. So somebody once told me that, oh, Ellie, it's, you're an immigrant to wealth. That's, you know, that's really interesting. You should talk about that story. Mm. I'd never heard that term, immigrant to wealth. And but that's, that's truly how I felt growing up as kind of the second eldest in my, in my family. Mm. And so did, 
Were you sat down and told about this or was it something that you started to sure. find out a little bit more about and therefore you asked the questions and, you know, how did your awareness of it all start to form? It, it, so first, um, I didn't know anything about the family business really until my 30s. Okay. <laughs> so we just, my, my parents just never talked about it. Um, and I don't know if I, I, I truly understand. They didn't make a connection. I was doing, I was, I was an athlete. I was doing other things. Uh-huh. Um, the family foundation came about because my dad, um, upon my grandparents passing, was down in Grand Rapids a lot. So he really, he had to rent out the land. He stopped farming. And he uh, started going to these meetings three hours you know, south. So I really never saw my dad for a couple of years as he and his brothers and sister set up the family foundation. So a, couple of year, you know, a few years later, you know, my father comes to me and he sits me down. And he said, hey, Ellie, I don't know if you know this, but we have this something called a family foundation. And I'd really like for you to be involved. Would you be interested? And I always talk about this experience as like, first of all, like my dad asked me, he didn't tell me that I had to go. He didn't tell me, you know, didn't tell me anything. He just said, you know, I'd love for you to do this with me. This is what I've been working on for the last three years. I'm very, very proud of it. Um, And I think that you, this would be, this would be great for you if you wanted to learn with your cousins. Um, And I said, absolutely. You know, and I am, I love my, my dad and I are like best of friends. And so, you know, I hadn't seen my dad for a few years and he comes to me and says, I want you to be a part of this. And of Mm -hmm. course I'm going to (laughs) say, yes, please. Where do I sign? Excellent. And so remind me, how old were you at that point? 15. And that's when you're 15. So uh, I think back to when I was um, 15, many, many years ago and I kind of, I'm not sure how I would have reacted had I known that there was, that level of wealth and you mentioned the 150 million dollars at the at the outset was that the size of it as it was established or has it grown to that kind of size oh no it's definitely grown to that okay but still it would have been um seeded with a significant amount of wealth at the outset no so and what my dad said at 15 uh, and I want to be clear, like when you have a foundation, you're not getting paid. Yeah. You can have incredibly wealthy foundation and a um, kind of impoverished um, trustee yeah. board, right? And so that's the weird, you know, part of having a foundation. <laughs> yeah. It's not your money. It's, you know, it's, it's now the community's money and, and you're, you're kind of a steward for that money. Um, and in our case, it's in perpetuity, although some people do things a little bit differently with their, with their philanthropy. Uh-huh. Um, so my dad was just like, listen, I don't want you to talk about this with anybody, none of your friends. I don't want them, you know, I don't want them to judge you. I don't want them to think that you're something that you're not. Yeah. And he really stressed that we don't have money. We just have this responsibility. Uh-huh. Um, and so that kind of, I mean, when you're 15, uh, you know, that kind of hits home. All right. All right. I'm not going to talk about this. Uh-huh. I'm just going to learn. Um, and, and try to make sense out of, uh, out of what I'm experiencing, you know, a couple times a year with my, um, siblings and cousins and parents. Mm. Yeah. And that's a really, um, interesting point is it, it would be very easy at that age in the right circumstances to think, okay, I'm now part of this family foundation and there's some, some dollars hanging around and, for that to change 
firstly you as a person, but also then influence the direction that the foundation heads in. Because if you're if you don't see yourself as that steward, if you see some sense of entitlement that actually that should be my money, it, it can entirely change the relationship you have with that foundation. It sounds to me as if the way that your father presented it to you was that you understood very, very well from the outset that this was a, a fantastic responsibility and privilege to have. Yes. You know, I, and I believe that because my dad is incredibly frugal, right? And he's like, we don't need money to be happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we, you know, we have our, you know, we make that happiness within ourselves. And so I really love that value system that my dad um, passed down to to us kids. Yeah. Uh, but I have heard, you know, around the boardroom table that, you know, the words, you know, this foundation is, in our, is our inheritance. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that I took that to mean is, you know, instead of this money coming directly to me, it's going to the foundation. And so uh, I don't think that's exactly what it, what it was meant, mm-hmm. um, but that's kind of what I heard. So there's yeah. some, there can easily be some entitlement. Uh, so I'm why, well, this should have been mine. Yeah. <laughs> why wasn't this mine? Yeah. Um, but so you really have to kind of shift that mindset and said, you know what, this is never supposed to be mine. This is always supposed to be um, for the community that gave so much to our family. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of that leads on to um, something we're both very passionate about, which is raising financially responsible kids. And it sounds to me that, you know, I mean, you mentioned you know, your father was frugal and it sounds to me as if your experience growing up was that you were raised to be financially responsible. Um, I believe I was as well. Um, have you seen any examples in the work that you do now with what good financial responsibility looks like and perhaps what bad financial or financial irresponsibility looks like? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you and I have had this conversation before. Like, I love this topic. I do. Um, but I want to back up. So you, I just kind of shared with you, like my experience. Um, <clears throat> I grew up on the, you know, this farm values, this, I'm, you know, I'm support your neighbor. I'm like anybody else. Um, you know, you borrow things and you bring it back into better shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's uh, very private. You don't talk about money. <laughs> um, you, you know, it's, it's kind of a be classy, don't be splashy type of thing. So yeah. we didn't drive nice cars. My dad still doesn't drive nice cars, uh-huh. you know, nice car. Uh, you know, it just like that, is the upbringing that I had. I've been working since I can remember, right? I've been working on the farm since I can remember. And we had horses, so that was my job, you know, to make sure that their stalls were clean. Um, And now fast forward, my son is not going to have that same upbringing. Uh He just can't. Um, So we we live in a, you know, affluent community in Michigan, one of the, one of the most affluent communities in Michigan. And he is, going to have more like he's going to have access to more we didn't have until later later in life when both my husband and I you know did have some good income coming in so there's a lot of things that I experienced I'm so proud of as a that I got as a kid um, that he's not going to have and so now what (laughs) yeah so you asked um, a little bit about um, how I've seen this played out you know for me um being this immigrant to wealth, I still had some issues around money. And I think that a lot of other people do too. You kind of see them in the news. Um, So not having a close relationship to money, I mean, like, I didn't know, like in college, money just, I don't know, the bills were just paid, Mm. right? I didn't, you know, when I was younger, I had, I made money, I put it in my 
savings account and I maybe spent it on things that I really wanted that my parents weren't going to pay for. Mm-hmm. Right. It was, I had complete control. You know, if I didn't have money in the bank account, I couldn't buy things, yeah. you know? So in college, that relationship changed. Like I went to a very expensive um, private school and money would just kind of appear. (laughs) (laughs) That magic money tree does exist. (laughs) It does exist. Uh, You know, and I don't think this did me any favors and that's why I'm sharing this. Like it just, my relationship to money changed. Uh, So my dad asked me to do a budget and the first part, you know, top lines of the budget is revenue. I'm like, I don't make any money. I have no idea. I'm like, what the revenue is on this budget. I have failed this test. (laughs) I couldn't even get to the expenses because I was so hung up on kind of working through this this budget um, that, uh, you know, I just, (laughs) I was like, I feel, I felt like a failure to my father. Um, And so I just think that when you talk about inheritance, or you talk, it doesn't even have to be inheritance. It, it, it could just be like giving your kid a credit card and paying for everything, mm. um, you know, in school, while they're in school uh, is fine. You just need to make sure that you have really good conversations of what that means yeah. and, uh, you know, and, and where those dollars come from <laughs> and, <I'll laughs> and how those dollars, you know, and how, you know, your credit card bills are paid. <laughs> yeah. Not the magic money trick. Right. The magic money <laughs> trick. Uh, so that is something that I would not recommend to people to do. I, you know, yeah. I definitely don't think I, I, unless you have a very strong connection with your child and you've had a lot of conversations about money, mm-hmm. um, you know, paying for everything, I don't think sets them up for success. in 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 the future um because when they're on their own are they going to wrap up rank up debts um because the money tree had always been there or the the magic money fairy had always paid things um and so uh, every child is different absolutely we have five kids in our family we're all different money personalities Uh um but i really think that uh, a lot of conversation needs to be had in order to just kind of give a a credit card (laughs) and then pay all those bills Absolutely. And um, I think that that um, stems across to, to some work I used to do. So I was on the panel for financial planners who uh, used to speak to national lottery winners here in the, in the UK. And so they were very, very sudden um, immigrants to wealth. So, so one day they were carrying on their life. The next day they were multimillionaires because they'd won fortunate enough to win the, the lottery here. And you could almost tell from the first time you met that person what their relationship with money was like growing up because some people come and see you and they go, look, I think I've, I've been a bit overindulgent um, with my money. I feel a bit uncomfortable with how much I've spent already. And we used to see them quite early on in the process. And they'd have done things like bought themselves a new laptop. And you'd think, well, you've probably earned as, as much an interest talking to me about buying a new laptop than you have spent on the laptop. There's really no need to worry about that side of it. Um, and then you'd see other people who would come to you and say, right, I've quit my job. I've paid, I'm gonna pay off all my family's mortgages. I'm gonna buy everyone a new house. I'm gonna buy everyone a sports car. I'm gonna go on all these different holidays. And then you kind of work it out in your head that they, they, they were back to zero very, very early on. And, um, you didn't say how how um, smug were you when you quit your job, and they were like, "Yeah, I really told him to stick it." And like, okay, we're, we're, we're going to have a problem here. 
Because come Monday, you're, you're out of money again. Um, and I think that tells you a lot about how there is such a wide spectrum of how people are raised when it comes to financial responsibility. Um, well, and Russ, you know, as raised and your own money personality comes in, your own kind of work um, comes into this as well. And my estate planner loves to say, like, you know, the people who blow the wind, a windfall, the fastest are um, lotos and unprepared heirs. And right now we're in this process, we're in like the third of, and maybe you've heard this before, the first third of a $60 trillion wealth transfer. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't know if that is, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's maybe just in the United States actually. <clears throat> so that's a lot of money. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. uh, it's me spread out over, you know, quite a few families. And, and quite frankly, it's not just going to be in cash into people's pockets, but it's also going to be into charitable, um, like foundations, uh, mm -hmm. donor advised funds, etc. cetera. Uh, but it's still a heck of a, of a wealth transfer. And so how are we setting up our kids to succeed? Yeah. Um, and you, you know, I just want to continue on. One of the things that I have, you can tell this is my soapbox, right? <laughs> I love this topic. Um, but you know, I think, so not only do you have to understand like, what your relationship is to money, like what a value of the dollar is and, and have these communications with your kids. But you also have to understand personally, like if you are getting an inheritance, you know, what are your feelings and emotions around getting that inheritance? Mm -hmm. Right. So many of the inheritors that I've talked to are like, are push the money away. So they either it's tucked in a bank account somewhere and they never touch it. They don't think about it. They don't look at it. It just is growing. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's avoidance, right? You're not yeah. taking <laughs> you're not taking control over your emotions around that inheritance. Um, and there's people like myself who are just like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't deserve this. I'm not worthy of this. I'm guilty. Why do I get this? And somebody else doesn't get this. This kind of seems crazy. Like, so I'm just going to spend it and I'm going to give gifts to others. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there's a lot of different things that you can do Um when you know if, if you're inheritor or not inheritor to kind of understand what your relationship is um, around getting money yeah and what would be your kind of starting point for somebody who, who might be looking at the or be part of a successful family business and they're thinking well you know my, my time is coming soon and 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 the succession discussion is starting to happen but how do you then start to explore either your own relationship or somebody else's relationship with money? Because it is, it, particularly in the UK, it seems to be a very taboo subject. It's, oh, you know, my goodness. You, you can't talk about money. It's kind of anything else but. Right. Uh, yeah, you know, politics and, yeah. you know, <laughs> everything else is. Everything else is, is on the table, but money, no. So that's why, you know, and honestly, that's why I think that we need to talk more about this because yeah. it just is not doing us any good about not talking about money, mm. honestly. Um, so if you're just starting out and um, just understanding like, what do you spend things on? Uh, how do you feel when you spend things? Uh, are you having thoughts like, oh, I've had a bad day. I need to go shopping. Yeah. Are you having thoughts like, oh my goodness, there's a sale. I can save a whole bunch of money. I don't need anything. <laughs> Who cares? I, you know, I can't pass up a sale. Yeah, <laughs> I hear that one. Are you, are you saying things like, ah, oh, I got my paycheck or I got this inheritance or whatever it is. I'm just going to tuck it away. I don't even think about it. I don't, I'm going to ignore that it's there. Mm -hmm. you know, these are all great 
starting points. Like how do you spend your money? Like that's mm-hmm. a great starting point. Um, and then, you know, why do you spend it like that? Do you, do you look at your bank account and say, that's awesome. I, my bank account is awesome. Mm-hmm. Or do you say, mm, this is not really <laughs> where I want to yeah. be right now. I've got a little bit more debt than I want or a mm-hmm. lot of it, you know, a lot more debt. Uh, and if your goal is to not have debt and your goal is to live an amazing life with debt free, then, uh, you know, start making those connections that what you're doing now is not going to get you. <laughs> mm. Completely. And <laughs> it takes effort, doesn't it? It's something you need to become aware of your own thinking over because yes a lot of our um habits are just there they're just something that we almost take for granted that these have been formed through our youth and our life experiences and how how we've all got to where we are um today but but by trying to understand that and understand why if you look at your bank account and there's a certain figure that you never want your bank account to go under if you go under, I don't know, $50 or £50 under that and you feel really anxious and nervous, why? What, what, what is it that's driving that and what is it that is leading you to have those um, thoughts about it? Because if you just sit there feeling anxious about it, it doesn't help. No. Or if you sit there and you think, well, this is amazing, I've, I've, got, um, you know, I've got X amount in the bank and that's what I always dreamed of when I was younger. What's the purpose of it? Why is that figure the important figure to you? Why not? $50 or $10,000 or $100,000 more or less. What's, you know, what is the driving point behind that particular figure? That, that kind of stuff fascinates me because it's, in our financial planning work that we do, um, we ask our clients what they would consider their sleep at night fund to be. So i.e. how much they need to have readily available in cash to not have to worry about, I don't know, the house falling down or something like that. And there's no right or wrong answer. It comes down to how much people feel comfortable with having to hand. And that will be driven through their own experiences through life. So there are studies out there that say you and I might have a, a number now. And then in 10 years when we, we become more successful and we have more money, it's, mm-hmm. it, the number will change. Yeah. <laughs> It'll grow up, go up. Yeah. So it just is, it, it's just kind of interesting on like what are you know, when you, even when you ask that question, it is still nothing is set in stone. Mm. Yeah. And I think a lot, a lot of people will feel when it comes to wealth, that, that either they are embarrassed is probably the wrong word, but feel like you were saying earlier, guilty about having wealth and others will feel absolutely entitled to it and think, oh, well, it doesn't matter if I blow it because there's more where that came from. Um, and I think within a family business environment, there, there can be, it can really shape the success of the business via those attitudes, which I think is why the, the point we started on with this conversation is raising financially responsible children. Right. That why there's such a strong argument for doing that. Right. And I want to, um, and I, I want to help answer that question in a second, but uh, I want to challenge like, maybe the entitlement is actually coming from something different, right? Okay. From, from that guilt or feeling undeserving. Uh-huh. And it just shows up as entitlement. So again, uh, again, understanding your emotions around money, I think it's just so incredibly helpful. And you can do this through journaling. You can do this through a lot of different ways. Yeah, and talking um, about it as well, I think. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and so I just really feel strongly that if, you know, 
for the millennials and for the Gen X and even boomers who have kids, uh, you know, between young kids like you and I do, or um, even older kids, um, you, you know, there needs to be some more conversation about uh, values, what the values are uh, around in your family around money. Um, and that can look like a whole bunch of different exercises. Mm-hmm. Uh, but clear conversation about values, I feel like has been one of the best ways to really have words to understand what I want to do with my money. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, like, absolutely. Okay. So like my father saying, Ellie, you know, we value in this family hard work and saving your, our money mm-hmm. uh, for a rainy day. Uh, that's going to give, those are going to give me words of, you know, an understanding of like, okay, this is what's expected of me. I want to do that. Or, you know what, this is what's expected to me. I think that I could do something differently based on my own personality style. Mm-hmm. So it just is able to start the conversation. Yeah, I think that's really important. And it's one of the challenges that are facing the rising generation within um, family businesses. Um, do, do you think this is the biggest challenge? Is, is there a, another challenge? Well, I mean, obviously there, there's a myriad of, of challenges that are um, the rising generation are facing when they're coming through a family business, but is there one that you see that is a, a bigger challenge than others? Sure. I, you know, you asked that question about main challenge. You know, is there a main challenge? Um, I could answer that question, but I kind of think that it should be a few main challenges like one like the, the time that we're the time is now right like the next generation as we're preparing for succession we're stepping into some enormous shoes yeah. i mean let's face it our parents and grandparents have been killing it um there we have a lot of very very successful family businesses and um stepping into those, that, those are big shoes to fill, right? Yeah. So that's kind of like some emotional work that we have to figure out and some actual leadership development work, right? How are we being prepared to lead in this ever-changing global society, right? This is not the same economy as when our grandparents maybe started the family business yeah. or um, even, you know, you know, if it's a lot older, um, family business was started. Like, so doing if 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 their parents uh if we're parents and our kids are want you know we want our kids to succeed us and so how are we doing to what are we doing to prepare them oh. you know verbally you know quite frankly this needs to be spelled out <laughs> there's so often in my work with you know multi-generational family businesses is this is never spelled out you know the parents just get ready to retire and they say my kids my kids aren't ready oh. And they're 40 years old or they're older and they've been working in the business the entire time. I'm like, who's, whose fault is that? Yeah. <laughs> this sounds pretty harsh, but like there had never been a plan. And I'm, and I'm thinking of a specific example, but there'd never been a plan. There had just been a, um, you know, they'd just been allowed to work in the family business. And meanwhile, the kids really wanted to run the family business. So there's amazing disconnect. Um, I think the third challenge is uh, what I am seeing all around me, Russ, and you and I have talked about this a little bit before, but how are we maintaining our wellness and balance, Mm. right? If we're in this global economy, we have stress like we've never had stress before. We have things coming at us every which way, shape, and form, and all, you know, all different areas of our life. Like, how are we staying healthy? Mm. And what I am seeing is um, my friend group, most of them who come from multi-generational family businesses are not 
staying healthy. They are succumbing to autoimmune diseases or some, some other maybe stress-related diseases. Mm-hmm. They are, their families never see them or their business never sees them, right? They're just not achieving. Um, a, people call it balance. You can argue with that word, but they're not yeah. a- achieving any type of balance that works for them. Mm. I think the last one is we really... Um, as a next generation of a family business, you really need to find your own passion and identity within the family enterprise. Uh, and that's not necessarily supported. <laughs> so um, I think that's important. I do. I think that's really, really important because the last thing you want is at the end, of, as you're retiring, you look around saying, oh, this sucked. I just spent 40 odd years working in a job I didn't really love. Yeah. I could, I really wanted to be an artist. Or I really wanted to be an actor. I really wanted to be something different. Uh-huh. And I think my dad taught me this one. Like he just knew that banking wasn't for him. He tried it and he's like, this is, this is not for me. And so he, he did, he went off and became an actor uh-huh. <laughs> and then a farmer. Um, but I do talk about this, uh, kind of setting up your kids for success in my Successful Generations podcast on episode 25. I feel so strongly, and I've seen both sides where kids have been set up for success and how happy they are, yeah. and kids who have not been set up for success and how it's, it's just destroyed families. Mm. And on uh, last week's episode, um, I spoke to Greg McCann, who um, you kindly introduced, actually. Um, yes. And uh, I know you know Greg, uh, and we were talking about um, redefining success and exactly that example of, of where you find your passion. It's still feasible to use the family business as a vehicle for delivering that passion. It might not be if you, you know the family business has made widgets over here, and you want to become an artist and, and f- follow your passion um, that you know is completely away from what the family business does. There's no reason why that family business still can't be used as a vehicle to to help support that it's just that not articulating that passion and not being given the um, safety and confidence to be able to do so means that you can end up as as you say working for 40 years in something that makes you miserable and um, we we have a a mantra um, that life's not a rehearsal you Mm. you can't come back next time and go okay I'm going to do this differently I'm going to follow my dream I'm going to follow my passion and I think some can feel trapped within their family business that they, they just don't feel as if they can follow that because it's not the done thing. So I love that you just said trapped in your family business because um, a friend of mine, Michael <laughs> Klein, just wrote a book on or the second edition of the book Trapped in the Family Business. Fantastic. So if you want to talk to him, I'm happy to connect him to that you because be great. it's really super powerful. Oh, what he he interviews people all over the country, if not beyond. Um, on their feelings of being trapped in the family business and how to avoid that. Fantastic. Well, yes, we'll, uh, we can make that connection and um, that's a pre- preview <laughs> to a future episode. <laughs> <laughs> and so you mentioned about the balance and, and I, I don't think there's a work-life balance. I think it's just life, but you need to get the balance of all the things that make you happy and following your passions part of that um, in there. I don't, I don't think you should suffer for eight hours a day just so you can have more fun at the weekend that's not a balance to to me um but but again maybe that's a a conversation for another day um (laughs) but what i would love to talk about is trout fishing oh yes Uh, and the reason i'd love to talk about is you're you you love trout fishing is that right 
I do. I love, I love fly fishing for trout, yes. Fantastic. And how did that come about? Was it just your surroundings and um, where you grew up that it kind of it became part of your life? Or do you use it as, a, as part of this uh, achieving balance, whatever that might mean to, to everyone? Oh yeah, that's such a good lead in. Uh, it is my happy place. It's my meditation. It's where I, you know, I decompress when I'm in the middle of nowhere <laughs> uh-huh. with a running, with running water, <laughs> you know, around me. And, um, and usually that involves a fly rod in my, in my hands. Like uh-huh. I love to, um, there's something so for me uh, and everybody, you know, people might find this biking, people might find this walking in nature. Uh, and I also find it walking in nature, but like my, my spiritual place, you know, really comes in, you know, when I'm out in nature and specifically um, lately it's been in a trout stream. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere the world. <laughs> I've seen, I've seen a photo of you doing, doing the said um, trout fishing and it does look, um, stunning. I, I've dabbled in some fishing as as a kid, but I'm, I'm mainly just stuck with hooking my finger all the time. So I kind of gave up quite quickly on that. But um, I can understand the um, the appeal of. For me, I get it a little bit through cycling when you're you're kind of out on the road and you choose. For me, I choose where I go, and and so I can take in some scenery and some some nice roads. And you're just alone with your own thoughts and able to. It's almost giving your brain a chance to process everything and, and the urgency of the modern world kind of goes out the window because you're, you're in your happy place. Yeah. And for me, because my mind, I'm one of those people, and maybe everybody's like this, I don't know, but I, my mind is constantly racing. Mm-hmm. It's on one thing, one thing, one thing, you know, next thing, and next thing, and next thing. And um, when I'm fishing, uh, the only thing that I'm focused on, this is why for me it's so like, it's like meditation, is getting my fly into that pocket where I just know there's a fish. <laughs> <laughs> um, there may be a fish or not, it doesn't really matter, but it's just, it's like, so there's nothing about work. There's nothing about my family. There is nothing in my mind except for this one focus Uh and I can do this for hours (laughs) I can I can can pretty much outfish anybody that's a challenge if anybody (laughs) (laughs) take me up on it um I think a friend of mine called me a a a fly fishing monster or machine I think (laughs) (laughs) wow I'm hoping it was a machine it could have been monster I'm not quite sure (laughs) that's something to add to your CV though isn't it uh, so, but anyway, I do it because you, we all need to take breaks, right? Uh-huh. And we all need to find that happy place where our minds just shut down and we can breathe and we can, you know, just relax <laughs> Yeah. and just enjoy what uh, the universe has, has given us. Absolutely. And I think it, it can be tricky particularly as you mentioned in today's society where everything seems to be everything's 24 hours it, it, there's you know there's no nine to five necessarily that that you know that's your time for focus the rest of the time is, is for relaxing I, I completely empathize with the the busy mind it's something that I have um constantly and it the the importance of finding that time to to relieve that is, I don't think can be understated, overstated. So I think it's something that we should be banging on about more and more because the we all know pretty much the benefits of physical well-being that they're relatively um, straightforward. But 
the long-term impact of um, sort of mental uh, well-being not being part of our lives is, um, is if not more, uh, serious. Yeah, it is. And it is serious. I'm, I'm glad that you said that. Uh, it is Absolutely. serious. So good. Um, so uh, uh, we mentioned again, you've mentioned your um, podcast and I've been fortunate enough to be a guest on the podcast. But before we talk more on, on that, what was your inspiration behind setting up Successful Generations? So I set up a generation there uh, because, and I actually, I've honestly been thinking about this for thinking about setting up the company for a few years. And as I mentioned before, I was the director of a family business center. It was growing. It's amazing. I love family business centers. We have them, you have them in, the, in, in Europe, you have them in um, UK, you have them all through the United States. Like well, there's about 70 odd family business centers, active family business centers in the United States. And this is a place where you can kind of come together as a family business leader and kind of learn from other family business leaders, right? Uh, and I just got so much great exposure. But I also realized there are people that don't have this opportunity to meet with others. And so they were they were feeling alone. They didn't have this, this community. So I, one of the reasons I started Successful Generations is because I want people to realize if, if they're working in their family enterprise, whether it's in family philanthropy, whether it's in the family business, whether it's just ownership and their family council, like they are not alone. You know, if 80 to 90% of, I think it's a U.S. stat, but I think it, it uh, is generated throughout the United States or throughout the world. If 89%, 80 to 90% of all of our business, businesses identify as family owned, yeah. um, trust me, you are not alone as you're kind of experiencing the family dynamics that are so unique to uh -huh. in the enterprise system. So I wanted to do something more. I wanted to reach people all over the world who didn't have uh, the amazing access that, I, that we had created with the Family Business Center. Um, I also knew that the next generation was, uh, because I am a next generation, stepping into some big shoes. So I wanted to have some education around what it meant to be a family business and how they could set themselves up to succeed as well as their parents setting themselves setting them up to succeed. Uh -huh. And then in that leadership development, there needed to be some coaching. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that we had the resources um, that we could give our audience, um, you know, the next, whether it's the next generation or their parents, uh, to, to be the best that they could within their family business center. Uh, so we have amazing, um, I bring it through the podcast, we have amazing um, experts coming on. So I'm, I'm sharing access to those resources and a little bit of their expertise. And of course, always connecting. Um, it's not what I really want to do is like, it's not about me. It's about the audience, right? So how do you bring in experts, interview them on a topic that is relevant to, you know, family business or family enterprise, um, and then share those, like, how do we find you um, mm. types of questions? Cause I just, you know, so they could contact them, um, you know, after they listen to the podcast, which they are, which is happening, which is awesome. Fantastic. <laughs> so that be, not being alone is, is huge. That education is a second piece. The third piece is, and it kind of ties into not being alone, is that peer group, right? Mm. I uh, have started almost 20 peer groups in um, through my uh, work at the Family Business Center and uh, in other work that I do. And I just believe that peer learning is in peer groups or, or mastermind groups, sometimes as they're called, uh -huh. is kind of 
where it's at. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, you know, especially when you're, when you're talking about building community and you're not going to be alone and you want to learn from others, the good, bad, and the ugly. Like when you have this type of mastermind group, you know, people are bound by trust and confidentiality. And so you really can share things that you would never share with anybody else. Yeah. And that is like, that's worth the price of admission right there. <laughs> I completely agree. I couldn't agree more. I, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of um, peer groups, mastermind groups. As you say, they, they take different names, but the they can be quite um, awkward to start off with because you don't necessarily trust that they are what they say they are. But once that's broken down, and that, that can happen pretty quickly, the um, quality and depth of conversation that you can have in those environments where you feel entirely safe, you feel as if you're not being judged because people are in that room because they're in a similar situation to you or experiencing similar things to you. The benefit that can come from those is, um, is huge, isn't it? Right. Well, and I love, you know, what I love about them is, you know, another point, which is you don't know what you don't know. Mm. Right. And so uh, when you're listening to other people's stories or struggles or successes, you're like, Oh, Oh, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> Oh my goodness, I am I'm about to face that yes. or I'm facing that right now and I hadn't even considered that. Right? There's so many ahas um because uh you just don't know what you don't know, right? You you kind of have those those blind spots and yeah. peer groups help um shine some light on those blind spots. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm guessing are you in each of these peer groups or do you set them up and say, you know, I'm here to support if necessary? Is it something you you're actively involved in each group? Uh, I'm not actually involved. I train the trainers. Uh-huh. Um, I train the groups and I let them launch into the world. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am in a couple of groups that I, as a participant, like for uh-huh. instance, we just successful generations just launched a, um, a wellness group for leaders uh-huh. in our community, because I really don't feel that we are, we are supporting our leaders as well as we should, mm-hmm. you know, the adage is, you know, give, um, if you want something done, give it to a busy person, Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is not good when it comes to <laughs> allowing that person to find margin, have margin in their, in their life. So uh-huh. I uh, started this peer group, um, and, uh, that would be, I, I don't lead it. I find an, another leader uh-huh. and I train that leader. Okay. Fantastic. And uh, overall the, the process of establishing successful generations and the, the peer groups and the coaching and um, podcasts. I mean, uh, I'm speaking from my own experience, j- just through the podcast, the, the amount of stuff that you're able to learn and share through podcasting is, to me, it's, it's exceptionally rewarding. Um, what have you learned from the process of, of everything that you've been doing? Because it's, that's on a far bigger level than, than me just putting out a podcast, for example. <laughs> it's so true. And I love podcasting and I love podcasts and I honestly feel like everybody should have. Yeah, one. I agree. <laughs> Completely agree. Oh, so I'm so glad that you have yours. And what I am learning right now is actually a little bit more about marketing and business. And right. my podcast is really for, you know, those in family enterprise. Um, and we talk about family business. We talk about family philanthropy. We talk about wealth and we talk about wellness. So that's a lot. And so what I'm learning is, um, 
a lot of people get really excited about wellness <laughs> okay. uh, or the, and the family business stories uh, and everything else is just kind of a, um, I'll listen to it if I can. Mm. So maybe niching down a little bit more or be really being clear on, if you start a podcast, you know, kind of being clear on what you're going to talk about. It is, it, it's probably going to be the best in the sense that you will get people who clearly understand what you're um what your podcast is about and they can opt into it. Yeah. Uh, I think mine is a little, still a little bit too broad, but I love it all. So yeah. <laughs> and sure. I, I was fortunate enough to, um, to appear on the uh, podcast uh, and really enjoyed our chat. Uh, so hopefully you're enjoying this uh, as much as I enjoyed okay. our one. Excellent. That's good. Right answer. Um, <laughs> d- d- it's, it's difficult because the, there's so much value in, in all of the episodes, but do you have one that you would say is your, for somebody who may not have picked up the, the, your podcast yet, that would be your, your entry episode, the one that kind of um, you're most proud of? Yeah, well, you know, I asked this question to you, so turn yeah. about, right? <laughs> <laughs> and your answer to me was, Ellie, they're all my babies. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um. I, and I do love all of them, uh, but if, if you're coming to my podcast for the first time and you're, you're coming from a family business, I would say Mitchell Caniff's podcast on mm-hmm. taking over, which is episode 21 is probably the best one. It's a little bit long, but honestly, I've had people say that they're listening to it two or three times yeah. because there's just so much good stuff within that episode so a a little bit long for me is um i think it's 80 minutes or something like that so a little bit over an hour uh but mitchell is a third generation ceo of his family business he actually fired his father and uh don't worry they're still best friends (laughs) but he, he talks about that experience and i think that that is probably um my favorite when it comes to family business it's a great story i I won't ruin it for for anyone that hasn't listened but it is a fantastic story it's it's, um it's the the way he talks about it is obviously from a a place where as you say he's still best friends with his dad so there's no kind of there's not the animosity of right your father i'm never talking to you again it was but but it's a great story i recommend people check out that um that episode um Sticking with the theme yeah. of um, asking questions uh, that you asked me, um, one of the questions <laughs> that you ask um, all of your guests on your podcast is, what does successful generations mean to you? Um, so I'm interested in your response. I know we've covered it a little bit in, in some of the um, previous answers, but if you could summarize to you what successful generations means, what, what would that be? You know, I'm smiling right now because <laughs> I asked, I've asked this to every one of my, in my interviews, I've had over, you know, 30 odd interviews and everybody's come up with different answers, but it's not necessarily, unless you think about it, it's not necessarily an easy um, question to answer, Mm -hmm. right? What do successful generations mean, you know, to me? Uh, And I realized I hadn't really answered it (laughs) myself. (laughs) Um, And so this really gave me an opportunity to kind of sit down and say, all right, what, what, Succinctly, what do I what do what do I, what do I think um, about this question? And for me, it means you know, successful generations means it means multiple generations of a family who love and respect each other, right? Uh, uh-huh. it, it, which, how does that translate? 
it translates into open communication uh, within and between generations. So not only do, you know, the second and third generations talk to each other and about everything under the sun and some really tough topics, but also there's time out for just the third generation to have uh, conversations to get to know each other as a generation, as a as, um, family, and the second generation as well, right? So that's kind of an example. Uh-huh. Um, also, I think there's, there are appropriate boundaries. I think this makes, also makes up successful generations. Um, when you have appropriate boundaries, which is hard to do within family businesses, yes. uh, because, you know, ask any spouse, right? You talk about business all the time, yeah. <laughs> holidays, um, you know, Sunday nights, you know, mornings, whatever, it, you know, it, at work, out of work. And uh, I don't, if we're talking about wellness, and I think wellness has to do with making sure that you have enough margin in your life. Um, having setting those appropriate boundaries, I think, is what makes it successful. Um, and then also planning um, the future together. So you hear a couple of reoccurring themes about this, you know, communication within and between generations and planning things together. And I think that one of the things that we don't do well in family business, in my own family included, is we we don't have good conversations. Mm. And if I may, Russ, like I used to say communication, communication, communication. That's why succession wasn't happening very well. Yeah. So it's either miscommunication, lack of communication, just bad communication, like whatever it was, communication wasn't occurring. Um, and now I actually think that it's conversation. Mm. What I realized in communication is nobody likes to be talked to. And communication kind of implies that I'm just telling you, this is these are my hopes and dreams. I'm just telling you, you don't have to really give me feedback. <laughs> yes. Um, and if you're talking about a multi-generational family business, uh, I don't know about you, but I love working with my second generation. Oh. I just feel like our board is so much, I don't know, stronger because we have the multi-generation perspective. And uh, so it goes from communication, I'm talking at you, to conversation, I'm talking with you. Mm. Let's discuss this. So this is what I'm thinking. This is what I wanna do with my estate plan. Um, I'm, uh, these are the experts that I've engaged. What are your thoughts about it? What are your feelings? What are your Mm. emotions? Like how can can you you see this happening? Just having some of those really tough conversations that um, we often shirk because they're tough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think in order to be a successful, in order to be successful, multi-generational family business, you, you need to have these conversations on a regular basis and you need to have that trust and love and respect that um, even if you have tough conversations, it's going to be okay. Yeah. I think that's such a valid point that the distinction between communication and conversation is, is huge, particularly if you think, you know, historically, let's take the um, example of a domineering patriarch who is saying this is what's going to happen. The, the message that could be coming across to, to the second generation is that whatever they think doesn't matter because yeah. uh, the overbearing father is saying this is what's going to happen. Whereas the shift of um, this is what I think should happen, what do you think should happen, means that the second generation are then thinking, hang on, my opinion really counts here. And are more likely to then buy into the process and to, to give due consideration and thought to all of that. And, and the, 
it's like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy that it yeah. all of a sudden becomes such a, a proactive and enjoyable process that a lot of the um, challenges, issues, whatever, however you want to label them of, you know, the domineering father saying this must be the case, um, start to go out the window. It, it can completely changes that dynamic. Right. And I want to, and I actually, I'm speaking from personal experience where we have a, had a succession plan that was basically planned for us. And we weren't, even though we'd been in the family foundation for 20 years, we weren't engaged right. uh, until the, the plan was done. And um, I'll speak for myself, but I know that I've had conversations with my, with my cousins as well. That this didn't feel good. Mm. Right? Why are you planning my life for me? Like, why not get my own, get yeah. my input <laughs> in, in things that are going to affect me? Mm. Um, and so that's what I'm talking about with, you know, the one, the tough conversations. If you come from a place of love and respect and trust, uh, it's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fantastic. And my next question was going to be, if you could offer family businesses a single tip, what would it be? But um, That's it. I think that's it. I think it covers it brilliantly as well. I think that's a, a fantastic point. And a, a distinction that I don't think there's enough um, awareness of. Communication is, is one thing. A conversation is two-way. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, thanks um, for I'm going to take that quote. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that, that's uh, a real eye-opener for, for me on this, uh, on this chat is, is that distinction is so important and so, so easily overlooked. So thank you for that. Um, uh, and we're coming to the end of our um, time now, which uh, I'm sad about, but um, we've, uh, we've managed to, uh, to talk for an hour or so. And it seems to have flown by. So um, firstly, I, I want to say a huge thank you for coming on the show. It's been a, a real um, pleasure talking to you. Um, but also, we, we need to signpost how our audience can find out more about you. Oh, my gosh. Russ, it's always so much fun to talk with you. <laughs> you and I, we have such fun conversations. So Indeed. I really appreciate this opportunity. Uh, people can reach me through my website, Successful Generations, with an S. So... Um, spelled out dot com so okay. successful generations dot com or my email is ellie so it's e double l i e at successful generations dot com and uh, if you have any questions about anything that I said today you know obviously feel free to email me mm -hmm. and we will put links in the show notes to your podcast uh, and to the website. And I think you're on LinkedIn as well, so we can perhaps um, oh. tag you up on, on there and Twitter and all these places that the modern world means that we can't get away from anything ever, so, <laughs> other than when Wonderful. we're trout fishing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I heartily recommend um, Ellie's podcast. They're, they're great. And, and I think you can tell from the, the chat we've had today, um, the, uh, the passion and, and um energy that goes into those uh, podcasts and uh, they are really are great listens so uh, go and check them out and uh, uh, we've already penciled in a, a time for Ellie to come back on the show to, to talk again so uh, until then thank you again and uh, uh, have a great day that's it for this week we hope you enjoyed the show if you'd like to leave us a review please feel free to do so on iTunes if you want to get in touch, you can find out more information at www.fambizpodcast.com. We'll see you again soon.